There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Rick Springfield performs at the Hollywood Casino at Charlestown Races in West Virginia on Friday night. He joined me to discuss his Grammy-winning career from his breakthrough hit Jesse's Girl to TV roles in General Hospital and even his new rum label with Sammy Hagar. Rick Springfield, hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Uh, you're very welcome. Where does this show fall for you in your in this entire insane uh, last two years of pandemic life? How, like, how long ago did you get back out on the road? Oh, a couple of months ago. Uh, it's kind of been hit and miss, you know. Uh, some places uh, were were shut down. Um, something gigs were canceled because other band members or crew members of the bands we were going to play with uh, got COVID. I canceled one show because I got COVID. Um, so it's, you know, it's been uh, difficult to get, uh, any kind of momentum going, but when we play, it's, it's like, uh, we've been so anxious to play that, it, uh, it's been amazing. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, that you, that you got the dang thing. Are you feeling any better? You're feeling better. You're back and ready back in action. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine. It was just like a flu flu. It wasn't, uh, didn't really affect me, uh, any other way. Well, I haven't grown a second head or anything. So. Right, right. Well, that's good. You're one of, the, one of the lucky ones with that. So that that's good then. Well, I know audiences will be uh, thrilled to see you. What what can they expect from this show? I mean, assume all the all the greatest hits. Is there anything you know new you've been working on, or what can they expect setlist wise? Uh, yeah, it's a real. It's a very intimate uh, kind of audience interactive show. Um, you know, I, I tell stories. I tell stories about the hits. What what created the songs? Where they came from? And who was involved? And uh, the guilty parties. And um, a couple of songs I wrote specially for the solo show that I don't do any in any other show. So it's very, it's a very different kind of show. Um, obviously, I do the the obvious hits, but uh, there's some uh, there's some surprises, and uh, yeah, a lot of uh, it's very very laid back, and and you know I can actually talk to the audience, which you can't do in a in a big band show. Very cool. Well, whenever I have an artist like yourself on, I love to hear sort of, you know, your your journey, you know, so take me back to the beginning. You know, I know you were born in um, in like the suburbs of Sydney, Australia, back in what, 49, I guess. Uh, what got you into music to begin with? Did, were your parents playing tunes around the house or, you know, what was it for you? Yeah, my dad, my dad was in the army, but he was also a singer and uh, we didn't have TV when I was uh, little. So uh, we lived out in the country in Australia. And TV took a while to get to Australia back then. So uh, in, after dinner, we'd sit around uh, the piano and uh, and sing songs. It was uh, pretty amazing. Now I think about it, it was very uh, because we moved around so much. My dad being in the army, it, we were a very tight family because of that, because we were all we had. 
so we'd sit around and and sing songs and it was all my parents songs like uh you know uh roger and hammerstein and you know all the show tunes and things like that but it, it got me interested in music early and then i discovered uh my own music when uh when i got old enough but um the fact that uh those show tunes the writers were the big stars you know uh roger and hammerstein and learner and low they all the writers were the big stars of the show and that kind of, I guess, had an effect on me. Um, and I started writing pretty early once the Beatles kind of showed us that we could do it. Although, you know, it looked easy for, for their, when they did it, but it was a lot harder when you actually tried it. But uh, so I think that's why I started writing was, was, was because of that early, uh, the early stuff with my parents. Awesome. Yeah, that, the Beatles will make it look easy, but for the rest of us mere mortals, it's not, it's not as easy. Uh, well, cool. So tell me about sort of your, your earliest earliest bands. I guess tell me about Zoot, right? Was that in like the late 60s you formed Zoot? Yeah, there was a band in Australia. Um, I was a guitar player. It was like a three-piece band, kind of like a who. And um, we they were a teen band, but I want, you know, I wanted it to go heavier. So I... Uh, Kind of pushed them in a in a heavier direction and ended up ha uh, doing an arrangement of Eleanor Rigby. Actually, you can still see on YouTube. It's pretty weird. It's uh, a 21 year old Ricky with his uh, trying to be Pete Townsend and uh, <laughs> Hendrick at the same time and uh, doing a heavy version of Eleanor Rigby. And that was a very big hit for us over there. And that kind of got me. And then we split up. And I I didn't really want to go solo. I was always felt like i i was a band guy so uh but i got talked into doing a solo thing and that was a the single i had was called speak to the sky and that was a hit over there and that was a became a hit over here too and brought me over to america awesome so speak to the sky uh brings you to america you, you know you're, you're a household name in australia and now starting to make some waves in in, in the states here as well very small waves in 1972 small waves but you're just starting to crack in there uh and so um i guess you signed with uh with what well, was sparmac records the first one but then you get on columbia records for for the second one comic book heroes how do, how was your sound sort of evolving uh going from that first record to the the second oh i think i started to write more truthfully and uh also from frustration uh, i had two out uh, of had one hit single in 72 speak to this guy and then nothing after that, although uh, I, I thought the working uh, the, um, the comic book heroes, my second album was actually a good album. It never really got any play, <laughs> mainly because mainly because uh, the teen magazines were all pushing me as the next David Cassidy. But I wasn't writing those songs. I was writing very you know songs from my own age. So uh, I eventually went underground for a while. Left the managers that uh, that had brought me over and were pushing me in the teen direction. And then resurfaced in uh, 76 with Nigel Olson and Dean Murray, uh, Elton's uh, band players, with an album called Wait for Night. And that was, uh, I had got, it was starting to go up the charts, and then the record company collapsed. So that was the end of that one. And eventually I just kept writing and writing and writing. And uh, when I wrote Working Class Dog, I'd pretty much given up the idea of getting a record deal. I'd had three, and nothing had really happened. So. I just started writing songs that I could play in a club because uh, the knack had just been discovered in the LA clubs and the LA club scene was really starting to happen. So I thought I'd just get a three piece band together, write some 
power pop songs and just go out and start playing. And then I uh, uh, got a record deal and the songs were already written. And uh, I didn't think, you know, anything would happen because radio was still playing disco and ballads at the time. And this was a guitar based pop rock album. Uh, but it happened to be just at the right time, I guess, when the radio was ready to switch. Oh, it was definitely the right time because Working Class Dog had uh, multiple songs on it. And uh, the biggest one, of course, uh, Jesse's Girl, a massive hit that people still will sing, you know, at at bars and cover bands will still play and stuff to this day. Um, tell me about writing that one, you know, because a lot of these, you know, a lot of pop stars didn't write their own songs, but you actually wrote this this banger smash hit here. So do you take me into the writing of Jesse's Girl. Uh, yeah, I was writing a lot of songs. I was uh, decided, you know, like I said, I wanted to get uh, some short, concise pop songs with good hooks that I could play with a three-piece band, just guitar, bass, and drums. So they were very simple, and uh, and I wanted them all under three minutes. And, you know, so if you didn't like one, then there'd be another one right along, that kind of thing. And Jesse's Girl was just another song I was writing. I, was, I, I tended to write a couple of songs at a time. Uh, and I'd have pieces lying around. And Jesse's Girl actually was a combination of two songs that I had, two pieces I had lying around. And I realized at one point that the verse and the B section to the verse actually worked together. So I hooked them up together and then uh, came up with the chorus. Um, and it kind of, you know, evolved over a couple of weeks, really. It was a couple of weeks in writing it, but also in, in writing other things as well. Uh, I still have the the lyric sheet actually of of me that I wrote Jesse's Girl on, and there's uh, two other songs on the on the the piece of paper. So uh, obviously paper was a premium, and uh, um, and you know I would I, to me it was just another song for the for the for the set that I was uh, putting together. A, it's really cool. You still have the the sheet. You should have that frame somewhere. <laughs> but B, did it? What did I read somewhere? It was like you were in the middle of taking like a stained glass class or something. Yeah, I was uh, like I said, I was I was had given up, pretty much given up getting a thought of getting a record deal. So uh, I looked around, looking around for other things to do, and I thought, which was incredibly stupid, that I could support myself as a stained glass master, and uh, <laughs> which is pretty naive. But I started going to stained glass class just because I love the whole creative thing and I love to draw and. Uh, and and I just met a girl there, and she had a boyfriend and in this class, and she wanted nothing to do with me. So I went home and wrote a song about it, and that's where Jesse's girl came from. Ah, so Jesse was a, another guy in the stained glass class. I got you. All right, cool. Well, um, I know. I mean, to this day, does it blow your mind? You know, to have a song so tied to you. I mean, I know. I think VH1 put it like top twenty eighties songs ever, or something like that. Uh, but what do you think? You know, looking back, I mean, I'm sure you're proud of a bunch of your other hits. But is it is it odd to have one song so synonymous with your name, or I guess, or is it more of just like a blessing that <laughs> that you're known for anything? <laughs> Well, it's a double-edged sword, you know. It's uh, it's great to have that that song, um, but it does still tend to overshadow new stuff. You know, I'll go on TV to promote a new album, and they'll play Jesse's Girl as the play on. So it's kind of. <laughs> and then schmucks like me are obligated to ask you about it every interview, you know. So it just never ends. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I mean, I get it. You know, it's a, it's a very big song, and I understand that. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm like I said, I'm proud. I'm mostly proud of it. Right, and 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 it bagged you a Grammy, so that, it can't it can't be too bad. Um, 
Well, well, cool. Well, you know, speaking of which, then what what other songs, you know, if, if you have if some of our listeners, you know, come up to you and they're like, oh, Jesse's girl. And you're like, well, that's all fine and good. But what other songs should they be seeking out when they hear this interview, they hear this podcast? Which, which other ones of yours that you've done uh, either before or since Jesse's girl? Are you, are you, you know, the, the hidden gems you're more proud of? Wow. I mean, I don't know. I, the, the, all the other hits, uh, they're kind of too familiar to me to kind of have any kind, any uh, objective view. Uh, but I mean, the last couple of albums I've done, The Snake King and uh, and Venus in Overdrive and uh, Songs for the End of the World, they've been the better albums, I think, and the better the better songs. But um, I mean, I'd listen to the newer stuff, certainly The Snake King, if you like blues, rock. Uh, and the stuff I'm writing now, which will be coming out hopefully this year. There you go. You heard it, everybody. The Snake King, some of the newer stuff. And then, of course, you know, you will you will be playing your, you know, the the other ones, you know, Jesse's Girl and I've Done Everything for You and Don't Talk to Strangers and Human Touch. I mean, there, there's a love. Tell me about Love Somebody really quick, because I'm sure a lot of our fans will remember that one off of Hard to Hold. But how did you come up with writing that one? Uh, it was kind of, I don't know, it was written. I wrote it actually for someone else. I was writing it for Bob Weir. For some reason, I don't know why I thought he would like the song, but it was during the uh, filming of the show. I was walking around with a guitar, and come and I can't, I wrote it. I remember in the the hotel room we were filming uh, the the hotel scenes in uh, in between you know filming. I had a guitar and I wrote it then. And for some reason, I was thinking it'd be great for Bob Weir. I have no idea why. <laughs> but then I thought, I, then I thought, no, you know, I think I'll keep it for myself, and it works within the context of the film. So uh, I kept it for me. So yeah, I love it. Well, before we run, I mean, I'm a big TV and movie guy too. So I, I, I have to ask you about, you know, you've you've done a good bit of acting too since, well, gosh, since like the late '70s. I think you debuted in Six Million Dollar Man. But um, tell me about, um, I guess was it Hard to Hold? Was that was that your first movie? Yeah, that was the first one. Hard to Hold. Uh, sorry about that. But yeah, I'm trying, <laughs> trying, to, trying to make up for it with uh, more recent stuff. Well, I know General Hospital, you were Dr. Noah Drake, too. Memories of working on that. And that was a pretty steady gig for you, at least to, at least a couple years there when the soaps were huge back then. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, the golden age of soaps. But, you know, um, I did, uh, um, done a, played a couple of weird characters like uh, Doctor on True Detective and uh, an American Horror Story, some weird guy. And, and, the, and then Ricky and the Flash with Meryl Streep, I played uh, her boyfriend. I've done a, a, a still looking at newer uh uh, new parts um, and certainly not uh, resting on my laurels of hard to hold. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had, it had to start somewhere, but yes, I mean, true detective. I mean, that's an all timer show general hospital. You mentioned American horror story. Oh, you're in supernatural as well, right? How fun was that playing Vince slash Lucifer? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, really good scripts. I liked the writing and uh, the best writing is on TV now anyway. So it used to be the, uh, Right through the seventies, all those shows I did were pretty awful. There were this, there were like ten scripts, and they circulated through all the different shows, and the acting really sucked. Unless it was someone really great like James Garner, but uh, it, they were pretty awful. I look at them now, and they were terrible scripts, terrible acting, uh, atrocious, uh, you know, f directing. Now all the great stuff has gone to TV, and it's. Uh, a lot of great opportunities in TV now with all the different channels and the great writers. Yeah, it's funny how the whole thing pretty much flipped and we're in this golden age of TV now. Movies yeah, are now struggling. Yeah, to keep yeah, up. You know, and the movies is basically just superhero stuff. 
Yeah, that's pretty much all it is anymore. Um, well, cool. Well, before we bow out, I got to ask you about your your um, your venture into um, some booze. The You have a rum with Sammy Hagar. It's called is it called Beach Bar Rum. How did that whole venture start? Uh, that was started over the over COVID, the lockdown. I mean, I've known Sammy since uh, 81 when I covered uh, I've Done Everything For You, which was his song. And and I I started thinking about getting into the alcohol business, and he said rather than being a competitor, why don't you come on board and be a partner in uh, the the Beach Bar Rum that he'd already started, and he had a uh, hit a had a home run with Cabo Wabo. So he was uh, uh, you know because we've known each other, it wasn't like you know getting together with someone new and and not sure what their direction was or if they're any good at it. I knew Sammy was certainly good at it, and. And uh, he's a great promoter and a very intelligent guy too. Um, so it seemed like an appropriate uh, uh, thing to do. And the rum's amazing. I tr- the first thing I did was try the rum. There's three different flavors and it was great. And and we can promote it organically because rum equals party and that equals rock and roll. And we've done a couple of shows together already and we'll probably do some more uh, once COVID is, you know, I don't know, whatever happens with COVID, if it's, uh, we have to live with it or if it's uh, under control so we'll be out there you know but pr- promoting it organically not just saying hey we've got alcohol i mean it's alcoholic like i said equals party equals rock and roll <laughs> it's been with us forever i love that rum equals party equals rock and roll that's a that's a good slogan right there uh well cool well if any of our listeners want to learn more about your career they could uh didn't you release a book as well where can they pick that up um my career, uh, I wrote about in uh, Late, Late at Night. That was my autobiography. Uh, then I wrote a novel called Magnificent Vibration. And they were. Uh, then I wrote uh, this follow-up to the Magnificent Vibration, which is called World on Fire. And that's available on uh, Audible. I narrate the, the story. And that was a weird experience, um, but really, really interesting. And uh, we're also bringing out a hardcover of the book in a couple of weeks. So it's it's fiction. What's the story about? Uh, it's about a plague that uh, destroys uh, half the world, uh, which is weird because I wrote it, I finished it during the pandemic. And uh, so that was very strange to, uh, to to experience that. And I got a lot of things right, but it's, it's really dark humor and it involves aliens and and God and, you know, a lot of the stuff I'm interested in. <laughs> well, very, very timely. But wait, did you start it before the pandemic? Or I know you said you finished it during, but had you started like, did, could you have even you couldn't have seen this whole thing coming, but you kind of did. I kind of did. No, I mean, I, I started it before the pandemic, yes, but it, uh, it's really about a mistreatment of the earth. And that's always been a big, uh, a big thing with me, uh, what we're doing with, to the planet and the animals and, and ourselves. And uh, so I, it really comes out of that. And it just the plague was kind of a, uh, what they call a MacGuffin, you know, like a, a thing to get the story going. And uh but it's really about uh, it's really about divisive religions and and how we've treated our planet um, and not been good caretakers and our hope that uh, there's someone out there that can save us basically. Wow. But it's humor. It's a dark humor. I mean, there's some there's some uh, tough moments in it, but uh, there's a lot of humor in it. Look at you dropping Hitchcock references like MacGuffin. I'm impressed. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, uh, well, if anything can save us, it's music. That's been the one concert and a little bit of rum, I guess. But music's been the one constant over the years. So thank you so much, everyone. Check out 
Rick Springfield, February 25th at the Hollywood Casino at Charlestown Races in West Virginia. Thanks so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.